Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. On October 3rd, 2021, Francis Haugen, the so-called Facebook whistleblower, appeared on 60 Minutes to detail her time with the social media giant and the content of the thousands of internal documents that reveal, according to her, the conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. Two days later, she was testifying before Congress, who have hauled big tech CEOs like Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, Twitter's Jack Dorsey, Google's Sundar Pichai, and others before them at least a half dozen times in recent years. The conventional wisdom is that big tech and social media platforms like Facebook are a threat to our way of life, to our democracy, to our sanity, and even to our happiness and our well-being. But is this threat real or just a moral panic? Today, Acton Senior Research Fellow Michael Matheson Miller talks with Robbie Suave, a senior editor at Reason and author of the new book, Tech Panic, Why We Shouldn't Fear Facebook and the Future. In the book and in this interview, Suave examines the recent knee-jerk calls to regulate big tech from both sides of the aisle. He argues that we should balance our concerns about big tech with the consequences of altering the ecosystem that allowed tech to get big, cautioning us to at least ask the question about proposed solutions to the alleged big tech problem, are we sure we really want to do this? You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Thank you for listening to Acton Line Podcast. I'm Michael Matheson Miller. I'm a senior research fellow here at the Acton Institute. Uh, my guest today here is Robbie Suave. He is an award-winning journalist and author. He's a senior editor at The Reason Magazine, which is a libertarian magazine, where he writes about free speech, education, and tech policy, criminal justice reform, and cult- cancel culture, among other subjects. He is uh, the author of a book, a new book called Tech Panic, Why We Shouldn't Fear Facebook and the Future, and uh, delighted to have Robbie on the podcast. Robbie, thanks for joining yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So uh, you're, let's, let's start with, um, we have a short time, so let's try to get right to this. Why don't, let's go over your big argument. I mean, you, you know, there's a lot of criticism about technology. There's fear about technology. There's questions about Section 230 and a host of other things. And um, I myself am critical uh, of technology. Um, and you have written in a bit of a contrarian book saying everybody needs to slow down. Let's look at things in a different way. Could you give us a Maybe a brief overview of the main argument of your book, and then we'll go through some of your your key sections. Absolutely. And look, I take seriously many of the criticisms people have of social media, of the power it has over our lives. And I'm listening and I'm understanding. I I think some of the concerns that people on both sides of the aisle raise are, are are worth talking through and talking about what we can do to address them. But increasingly, this conversation, and it's left and right, it's it's everyone, just the kind of app apocalyptic claims being made of social media just don't match reality to me at all. 
And that's one thing. And then the other thing is the solutions the involving the government, um, possibly breaking up these companies, changing, tweaking their liability protections, all seem like very bad solutions in that they won't fix the problems on the table and, in fact, might make things worse, particularly for the right, which I think, you know, conservatives in the past have had a very admirable, uh, one aligned with my own views of, as a libertarian, admirable distrust of the government, bringing the government in to solve problems. But now I hear so many Republicans and conservatives saying, no, we need to break up big tech. Big tech is silencing us. And A, I don't, I don't think, I think that's true in individual cases, but, but overall, I think social media has been actually tremendously good for the right, like really, really wildly good. So A, we shouldn't do something about it and B, it violates our principles. So I, I, I'm left a bit mystified. And, and my book is, a, is an attempt to, to really persuade, uh, to persuade everyone, but I think to especially target uh, tech skeptical people on the right and, and say that, no, you, you had it right the first time. The government should not get involved here. Uh, you're you're really you know missing the forest for the trees sort of thing. Good, yeah. Well, let's let's maybe go into that. That seems to be, as I read your book, you know, that seems to be your your main focus are tech people on the right. So maybe why don't you out, outline a little bit of this for for listeners who may not not know what's going on here? There's in a sense, and correct me if you think this is wrong. You have like early tech critics who are worried about the platform, who are worried about the the effects of social media, whether it's mental health or behavior modification or, or whatnot. And, and then you have a, a, a second set of people really worried about Facebook and Twitter after Trump won and after Brexit. So that you have almost a, a, a rise of left-wing critics because somehow Facebook and Twitter were used uh, by, in a way by, by the right to get Trump elected. And that made their ire come up. And now with cancel culture, you have... Uh, the right conservatives saying, wait a minute, our voices are being shut down. And you argue, well, uh, not really, because Ben Shapiro has some of the biggest uh, 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 channels on, on Facebook, and it's actually positive. Um, a, did I get that kind of trajectory right about technology? And then B, what, what do you think people, how do you think people need to, to think about this? Because you say, I think a lot of people would hear you and say, what are you talking about? We're not shut down. Of course, conservatives are shut down. How would you respond yeah. to that? And I and I never I agree that social media decisions have made very bad moderation calls in a bunch of cases that have hurt conservatives. I am absolutely not saying I don't want anyone to mistake me for saying that. You know, like, so how the how the platforms handled the Hunter Biden story was shameful and wrong. They said it was wrong. They admitted it was wrong. Um, I, other other decisions have been bad. Absolutely, we should call them out for not living up to their own stated commitments to to free expression, to their terms of service, et cetera. All, totally fine. But when conservatives make the overall case that the effect of social media is, is a vast silencing of conservative speech, that is just not correct. Social media has empowered conservative speech more than any other communicative innovation ever. It, the, the landscape for expressing heretical views, uh, non-liberal views, contrarian, libertarian, conservative, even far left views for, for saying things that the mainstream media would rather you not be allowed to say. We are, it is easier to express those ideas, to, to share content about that, to have conversations on those fields than ever before. And that's because of social media. It's not just Ben Shapiro. It's a, it's a host of right-wing figures, conservative figures and conservative content producers that are killing it on Facebook, absolutely killing it on Facebook. 
Social media is a good thing for alternative speech, for alternative platforms, and we would really risk giving that up at our at our peril. It would be and and look, it's 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 the case explicitly that Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, other Democratic figures and thought leaders, they they want to get rid of Facebook. They know that Facebook is helping their political enemies more than anyone else, more than their own ideology. They know that, which is why they want to do all of these things. The great confusing part of it is that Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, other figures on the right have signed on to the proposals Democrats came up with to prevent more conservative speech online. So why do you think that is? Why, why say, is Hawley and Cruz, they're so vociferous about this? What's what's behind this, do you think? Well, so I can only guess. I can't get into their headspace. I sought to interview them for this book. I reached out to them. I, I, I sought to engage with them because I'm I'm really coming from a, a position of good faith here. I, I, I think it is good that conservative speech is allowed to flourish on the internet. I am for a robust exchange of ideas and that sort of thing. I, I, I'm, I'm, I swear I'm not like going for any kind of gotcha. I think it's good that there's alternative platforms for speech and their proposals risk hurting their own hurting their own speech, hurting their own side, whatever you want to call it. So I don't know why they're doing that. I think it can be hard to escape the because the, so the platforms do make individual content moderation decisions that are bad and they criticize those. And that's fair. But for some reason, they have then jumped to this kind of sweeping claims that are not accurate and these solutions that would be very, very bad. Increasing Facebook's liability uh, uh, burden, which which is what reforming Section 230 would do or getting rid of Section 230, that is just a proposal to compel Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, to take more action against speech on the platform that that concerns them. That will will not devolve to conservatives' benefit. That'll hurt them more. An environment where where Facebook has more concern that it could be sued for allowing speech on the platform is going to be one where they take down more right wing stuff. That's just what's going to happen. Okay, so let's talk about that. In your your I your first chapter, you you look at kind of fear over the election, and you go through that. So I'd like to go back into that because I think that's an important thing to to address. Because it seems to me that um, while I've actually had uh, critiques of tech for a while, you see this kind of. And I think there are people on on the right and the left who were criticizing tech be, long before the the um, for Brexit or the Trump election. You really see this rising of of left wing critics who are like, "Oh my goodness, we thought Facebook and t- and Twitter was going to kind of be on my our side, and next thing you know." Trump got elected. So somehow we got to shut this down, right? And that's what you address in the first chapter. And then you go into section 230. Can we talk, just let's talk a little bit about that kind of rise of the tech panic on the left, right? Because there's a tech panic on the right and a tech panic on the left. Let's talk first about the tech panic on the on the left and sure. your analysis of where, say people like Shoshana Zabouf, for example, you know, um, in surveillance capitalism. I think she has some really important things to say. Um, I, th- I have some critiques of Facebook, but I think about, what's his name? Uh, Mac McAfee, who wrote uh, Zucked, you know, yeah. the whole thing is like, oh my goodness, Facebook completely changed the election. And and you say that's just not factually the case. Can you go into that and talk a little bit about that? Sure. It, it, it's really, it, it's, it's a very, it's a very absurd claim that has really, that has gotten weaker over time, that this is all Facebook's fault that Donald Trump was elected. So that theory kind of rests on the idea that, and, and this part is true, that Russia, uh, Russian 
agents, elements tried to impact the outcome of the election. They wanted Hillary Clinton to lose. Their one of their efforts was to put on Facebook, you know, fake accounts, weird, misleading Facebook groups, the, the design to targeted at certain people that was that were as part of an effort to undermine Hillary Clinton. And this has freaked out people in sort of mainstream democratic and progressive circles, like really freaked them out. Zuckerberg should have done something about this. How could he miss it, et cetera? It just, there's no way this amounted to anything. There, the number of, of, of these kinds of groups and bots, and it, it, was, it was small, seen by a fraction of the people on Facebook. The, the amount of money behind it was minuscule. It's a drop in the bucket compared to what the campaigns themselves spent. Now we're talking about, I mean, if you want to talk about the 2016 election, right? Trump wins because he flips Michigan, Pennsylvania. He does better than expected among a sort of rural, working class, white union labor type person who would have been a, 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 a member of the de- Democratic voter in previous election cycles and is increasingly brought in by Trump. This is someone who is watching cable news who is listening to talk radio. This is not someone who is necessarily super active on social media. Uh, the, the idea that Facebook would have more of an effect than like the 24 hour propaganda networks, which is, which is, which in when it's either direction, right? Fox and CNN and MSNBC and talk radio are 24 hour campaign commercials for or against Donald Trump. Uh, newspapers make endorsements. The New York times complaining about Facebook's Influence. The New York Times endorses candidates. It tells you who to vote for. Um, the so the traditional the the previous media ecosystem involves so much um, uh, uh, coercion, if you want to call it that. I don't call it coercion because trying to influence people to vote in an election is not wrong. It's an election. The people get to vote. It's okay to influence people. It's okay to tell people who you want them to vote for. That's what all sorts of media companies are doing. Facebook did not do that in any novel or insidious way, and it didn't end up mattering that much. It, it's absurd to say otherwise. And 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 you know the, the and related to that, there's this idea popular among people on the left that you know that Facebook is like mind control, that the algorithms are a form of mind control. You know, you see an ad where you have to buy it, but we know that's not true. That doesn't work for any kind of advertising. We know mind control isn't real. We know uh, the uh, the subliminal advertising isn't real. They, they, they don't have, this power is not nearly as insidious and scary as people are making it out to be. It can certainly be used for ill, uh, if they obtain information about you, your data, and it you know it falls into the government's hands or a foreign government's hands, I see how it could be bad personal data. I'm very concerned about privacy. That's probably an area of the book where I'm most open to someone proposing some kind of government thing to deal with it. But it's not it's not mind control. Facebook can't tell you who to vote for or what to buy, and we're giving them way too much power if we're pretending otherwise. So I think two things come. One is I think just on, on that point. I mean, you kind of you make this point in your in your book as well, right? That Facebook was used very successfully by the Obama campaign to get the vote out, right? And and so what happened is when it was used now by Trump campaign to do it, this is where some of the voices came out. So in the past, there had been praise, like, oh, what a great political strategy. And now you're saying, wait, it's a problem, right? I mean, that, that's- No, seemed- you're ab- that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. It, Obama successfully used social media. Look at that. It's so interesting. And then and then to the extent Trump does it, look, Trump was very effective on social media. No, no argument there. Trump used Twitter in a very novel and very, uh, very important uh, way 
but it, it's it, it's it's wrong to say that a that that was improper and b that like that was the deciding factor. I guess the election was so close that any number of factors you could say, well, that's the reason he won because in a close election there could be you know a, a thousand different things that all contributed slightly, and it could be that was the thing. So except in that very narrow sense, I, I, I it's just I think it's just not correct to say that this is Facebook's fault. So uh, there's a couple in the second thing that you brought up. I mean, I think I, maybe we'll have time at the end because I know we have a hard stop and I want to make sure we go through your book and not just my views uh, here because <laughs> you're a guest on the podcast. <laughs> I have plenty of views, Robbie. Uh, but um, <laughs> but I, I do think, you know, I agree. Okay. When you use the term mind control, right? I think there's, yes, of course, we're not under mind control. We have, we still have agency. Um, I wonder if you, if you, I mean, I think if you're taking seriously enough, like just the impact of behavior modification, uh, that's that was something that kind of struck me as I was reading the book a couple times. Um, so I, I'm, I'll bring it out now, but I want to go back to your argument. I would say, like, you know, when I when I read when I read your book, maybe I've read The Abolition of Man too many times by C.S. Lewis. Uh, maybe I think about anthropology uh, too much, but it seems to me that like you talk about, you know, come on, like. And I, I think you're generally right. Like, it's not as if like somehow you're going to like all of a sudden start watching YouTube and you're going to become alt-right. I mean, that's just like such a small percentage At, uh, or even like radically left, right? But right. it seems to me, so so whether it's, you know, alt-left, alt-right, whatever, that, but it seems to me that broadly speaking, let's say a, what you could call in the past ideas that would have been radical, ideas that were part of say, the sexual revolution or cultural socialism, and by that I mean people like Herbert Marcuse and uh, the Frankfurt School, these ideas, or, or even Sidney and Beatrice Webb, and the kind of these ideas that would have been radical uh, 70 years ago have now become normalized. And part of that's just because people are being inundated with basically a hollowed out materialist left wing view of the person. And that seems to be. I think the thing that conservatives are concerned about, not, not so much like um, the extreme cases, but in a sense of the dulling of the mind so that the meme culture, right? Now, memes can be really funny, but if, if that's how you begin to think that you increase individualism, you, in, you, you decrease kind of a broad understanding of, it, of education, of thinking broadly. This increases individualism, which then increases centralization. And so there's this kind of Tocquevillian worry that social, it's not that social media is necessarily mind control, but that the long-term exposure does have behavior modification effect. It seems like you don't have to go all the way to mind control and get rid of agency to be able to be worried about, say, Wall Street Journal's report on TikTok serving up drugs and sex to, ju to teenagers about just kind of banality of wasting time on social media. It, how do you respond to that? Uh, well, if, if your concern is, you know, the 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 rapid uh, success or spread of a of a couple sort of kooky left ideas, ideas that I also don't like, um, I, I would just I I don't think that can be the blame for that can be laid at social media's feed. I mean, that's the I think. Probably that's the education system. That's the university system. You know, a small number of activists, left campus elite people, come to hold these views, and then are like forcing everyone else to hold them by trying to like destroy the lives of anyone who departs from it. Um, that maybe there, there's uh, social media has 
been a tool for them, but it seems like the very last link in the chain to me. Um, what about Google? And then, what about like what about like Google searches? You know, and and in a sense, how would you how would you respond to di- maybe 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 you don't want to talk about this, which is fine, but broader than just social media, how about digital technology and some of its negative effects? It seems to me like I guess my point is, I think this, but I think I think people would also push back on you and say, okay, yeah, good. I agree with you. It's not mind control. But the fact that behavior modification is taking place, the fact that that all this data is being collected and it's being used against you to modify you and children is something we do have to be concerned about. Now, A, do you think that's maybe just wrong? And then B, we can discuss how we should handle that, which is another big question. If all that was being claimed is that, like, I don't argue against it when all is being claimed is that there are some complications of this that we should be wary of. I don't have any problem with that. It, it's the sensationalist claims. Like I, I mean, some people are treating it like mind control, the social dilemma film. Yeah. The, this is the Netflix documentary. It like explicitly understands social media and that just maximally scare you. These hearings for the, involving the Facebook whistleblower and such, you had congressmen, multiple members of Congress saying that Instagram is a kid. This is, this is Facebook's big tobacco moment excuse me, where are the millions of deaths at the feet of Instagram? Are you kidding me? It's it, like, it's just not like that at all. So, so sensational negative claims are being made, which is why, which is what I'm, I'm arguing against. I don't, I certainly think these technologies are capable of being addicted, uh, being addictive. I, but so were like every, so is the TV. So I, I would have played video games when I was a kid all day, all day if I could, but my mom limited me to an hour of video games on weeknights and that worked pretty well. I don't see, I see why this is a little bit different. There are more kind of ingenious hacks to the technology to keep you scrolling and keep you coming back. I don't discount that those exist. So maybe it's a little different, but it doesn't seem fundamentally so different to me or it doesn't seem like we're unequipped to deal with it. And with the behavior modification, the change, I mean, everything is behavior modification. Everything changes us. It's not always nefarious. There, there are the fact that, you know, that kids have and there are trade-offs, right? The fact that kids can easily communicate and be in dialogue with their friends like at all times is is a is a positive hack in some ways. I mean, they, so there's less drunk driving. There's less uh, premarital sex because kids don't have to go actually somewhere to see their friends and get up, get into trouble uh, every day. Um, and, and in fact, for the last two years where we forbid everyone, including young people for no reason whatsoever to, to, to not socialize, um, this was probably a great fallback thing that they, that they had. So I I'm, and then when you look at the data, you just don't see a lot of evidence. Like even the, this survey that the, that Facebook did internally, that the whistleblower revealed that, oh, well, it was a one, I don't, can't remember what it was, one in five or two in five teenage women were having really negative depressing feelings from being on Instagram. Okay, sure. But that's, that's like a survey of their opinion. I, it's, it's not actually a measure of the real world, world harm. If you surveyed them about school, how does school make you feel? I bet 90% of teenagers would say that school often makes them feel very depressed, very sad, very negative, because being a teenager is hard. Being a teenager is difficult. So yeah. I, I, think you could, I think you could make a lot of these claims about just like anything. So then it becomes very stupid that we're having these like several congressional hearings and discussing about destroying, discussing destroying these companies over very like not proven or well substantiated apocalyptic claims. I would say my, one of my critiques is that I, I want sometimes it seems to me you're just stating the opposite 
And I do think you're right. Like there's a lot more going on than just than just Instagram, right? I mean, we have to look at a whole host of things that are causing unhappiness. Like what's the, what's the family situation? Uh, what's the, how are people eating? Are they using are they are they on contraceptives, which affects their hormonal systems? I mean, there's so many things that are going on, and I think I think you kind of bring out the fact that just because there's a correlation, this isn't the only cause. Um, and I do I do think I do think like you. Maybe maybe it's also my point in life and your point of life, right? You're young, newly married. I'm old. I have seven children. I'm thinking about <laughs> you know things in, in a bit of a different in a different way. I'm also uh, you know trained as a philosopher and and so, but I I think the thing that you're doing that is correct is that you're responding against the sensationalism and saying, wait, let's just slow down. Uh, because this sensationalism can be used to really create bad law. And it seems like that's kind of where your target is. Am I, am I missing you, that in that you have to say, wait a minute, okay, we can debate about some of the complexities on tech, but let's not jump to give the government power to solve all these problems when A, we don't have enough data and B, that's probably a bad solution. Yes, that's exactly what I'm doing because, I, and again, you know, cards on the table, I'm not being... I'm not trying to avoid it. I am an ideological libertarian. I, I I don't want the government to get involved in things, but I'm a rash. I'm trying to be a pragmatic person. If you show me a really, really, really awful problem that we just can't come up with any way to do anything about it, and we have to we have to bring in the government, okay, I'll be reasonable. But for to get to that point, you have to show me, okay, here is this really, really big problem we can't deal with any other way. And here's my solution that involves the government and that's it, going to work for this reason. And not a single, with, with rare exception, not a single one of these, uh, these cases checks both those boxes. And I'm also, I, and, the, and the other perspective I really want to bring in is just, let's look historically at all these other innovations in the communication space. Video games come before social media, uh, TV, Radio was new once at one time. The phonograph was new at one time. The written word was new at one time. In every one of those cases, there was there was worry, there was panic about how this would change society for the negative. And and re, re, recently, in the last hundred years, that panic has often been fueled by the by whatever the traditional media is, by newspapers. In many cases, I have so many examples in my book of the New York Times saying, well, phonograph is going to destroy society. Well, radio is going to destroy society. Well, TV is going to destroy society because all of those things compete with newspapers for your time. So it's an, it's an, it's an industry rivalry. And that part is so often obscured. Even today, when so much of the tech coverage is negative, the social media coverage is negative, I really want to let people know it's negative for a reason. They are self-interested, the people telling you this. They have a, they have a business incentive to have these rival companies destroyed. So please keep that in mind when you're if you're you know reading all oh, the New York Times very breathless coverage of how of how social media is selling you hate and is selling you fear. Really, is social media doing that, and the New York Times isn't? So that's a that's a perspective that should not be lost. Yeah. So let's 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 go from there because I think this goes to a point of broadly of self-interest of organizations, of regulatory capture. And so, I mean, I wish we had more time, Robbie, because we could go into some debates. Um, so I, I'm going to do some self-promotion. I just wrote a little book called Digital Contagion, which is 10 Steps to Protect Your Family and Business from Intrusion, Cancel Culture, and Surveillance Capitalism. I'm probably more down on tech than Robbie, but I think you should buy his book and my book. And I think there's a deal at Amazon where if you, you get two of these books for the price of two. Right. Oh, you just, right? you just, <laughs> <laughs> and you, you say big tech is bad. <laughs> <laughs> if you spend money on both these books, you'll get them anyway. So, but, uh, but, but here's something where I think we, we, 
like I would like it. Too bad we don't have time for debate. Here's something where I, I really tend to agree with you. Now, I'm not a libertarian, and I kind of tease libertarian uh, friends that I always find libertarians will always be bigger state than I will because I'm, I believe in the limited state, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a libertarian for lots of, of maybe anthropological reasons. But I am very worried when the state gets involved. And so uh, because of this thing of regulatory capture, and there's this some sense that – I mean obviously there's a place for the state, but it, when the state gets involved, especially in a thing like this, you're going to have in a sense the, conclu- the collusion – of big tech companies with lots of influence and lots of lobbies, lobbyists influencing the state. And when we see, especially from, say, uh, some of the left wing of the Democratic Party, this desire to regulate tech, um, it seems like they want to control tech. I think James Poulos on Twitter uh, wrote, uh, we're going to go from Facebook to Fedbook. Right. Yeah. Right. And they're and already I, trying to do that. Yeah. yeah. And I, so, so in that, so, and I, so I, again, I did that self promotion, but of the book, but I actually don't get into this because I, I, I do think maybe we need better rule of law around tech, but I'm always skeptical of regulation. So my kind of idea is, okay, here's 10 things you can do right now. Right. But this brings us right to the, a key chapter of your book. And I, we're going to unfortunately have to end there. So you can, you can go to your next, uh, meeting. But it's the question of Section 230. How do we think about regulation? So here, so as I said, I've been, I'm kind of a skeptical critic of parts of your book, but when it comes to your worry about the state, I'm a very friendly reader on that and worried that somehow if we get the government involved, we are going to make it much, much worse. And we're going to allow the collusion of, fe- of Facebook. And, and one more thing I'd like to address with you is that's kind of my concern about privacy. And it seems to me right now, so I want to ask you about this and 230. First, my concern, Robbie, is I hear libertarians, conservatives, in the past saying, oh, come on, who cares if Google has all your data? Who cares if Facebook has your data? What I'm carried about is the state has your data. And I say, yeah, that doesn't matter. I mean, if the state has your data or if the state is outsourcing private companies to get to collect your data that they can take from you, this is a serious problem. And one of my big concerns is the question of privacy and just all this data collection. That's the first thing I want to ask you. And then I want to ask about 230. So can you, how would you respond to my concerns about privacy and data collection? Because I think it's just the state is right now outsourcing private companies to collect it and that when they want it, they're going to go get it and they're going to use it uh, against us. What's your response to that? Well, I'm concerned about that too, but my response would be, so in, in practice, it might just be there's nothing we can do about this. In theory, at least, if you want to do something, the actor in this situation that we can constrain or that we can more easily constrain because of the way the law works and the Constitution works, uh-huh. the actor here that we can constrain is the government, not the company. Uh, it, so it's weird to focus on, and I think many on the right do this, they focus on, well, so, so how, what can we do how can we stop big tech from doing this? I'm like, well, the First Amendment's going to kind of get in your way. Existing antitrust law doesn't quite cover it. There's not a good tool. But theoretically, you could, and I would encourage us all to do that. We could vote for a smaller government. We could vote for different people in government. We could vote for a government that doesn't want this data collected, that doesn't want, uh, that, that, that doesn't want, um, that doesn't bark at tech companies to take down information they don't like, uh, et cetera, and so forth. The, the, if we're going to do something in this domain, we can do something about the government. Now, maybe we can't because we don't have the votes. We don't have enough political support. But that's also true of trying to do something about big tech, right? So the, the, the area where 
that you could where you could at least in theory have set up some kind of different policy or rules or regime is is you you could elect different people to do it now I, electing you know electing I've never gotten my wish by voting for different people but you really can't do it because you're just constrained because the first amendment and other things grant a lot of power to private companies to do whatever they want with speech related policies. Okay. But what about other things? People would say, look, that's actually part of the problem. I mean, why are we letting these tech companies have such power, um, more power than democratically elected, uh, representatives? It seems like this would be an argument, right? Um, people would say, I think, well, we have, we have to control tech. We can't, we, there's, isn't it a failure, some would ask, of a libertarian view that somehow everybody can just do whatever they want? And now what ends up happening is we get big collusion with the state and the government. It just looks like it's libertarian. When in reality, you have, you know, almost corporatism, a type of, of collusion. What, what would you well, say to nothing, that? There's nothing libertarian about the the Biden White House telling Facebook what its COVID policy ought to be, which is the situation we we are in now, but that is, that is a government failing. That is a failing of our government, not a failing of Facebook. So I, I would just take it from the exact opposite end. Also, I, I look, yes, some of these companies are doing things I don't like or agree with. I don't at all agree with the view that, well, we can't do any, they're just so powerful. You know, Facebook will never be replaced. Facebook is dying right in front of our eyes. It is a, it is a diminishing company that will never, this is my prediction could be wrong. I don't think Facebook will ever have as much political, social, cultural uh, relevance in the future as it did three years ago. They cannot, they're not going to get it back because none of these companies, media adjacent companies, they rarely do they recapture the luster once they've lost it. And this company has lost it. So you make that case in your book with other companies too. I mean, you make that case with like MySpace, et cetera. So there has been tremendous historical upheavals in the tech space. Maybe Facebook will keep buying competitors so that this doesn't happen, but they TikTok, they couldn't buy TikTok. And there will be some new thing that comes along. My prediction is that some new thing comes along that they can't grasp a hold of. But if you're worried about them grasping a hold of it, the worst thing you could do w- it would be this Section 230 reform that they support. Okay, Facebook so let's talk about that. It. Yeah, let's so talk about Facebook. Take, so do, let's do this real quick. I, I think it's, I don't want to stop, but quickly give listeners a quick overview of Section 230. I think you do a good job on your book by going through the origins of it. We don't have that much time, so I'm forcing you to do this really fast. Yep. But once so, you do that and then argue against it. Right. So, so Section 230 is federal statute uh, from the 90s that, that protects the, plat- the internet websites, platforms from liability for your speech. So if you post something on Facebook, and it's libelous, someone can sue you, but they can sue you, they cannot sue Facebook. And that was done so that social media sites would feel okay about doing some amount of moderation. We all want some amount of moderation. Even the most free speech person you can find, they're not gonna want harassment and death threats and like vile pornography, all of that kind of stuff. We want social media to take that down. And prior to section 230, they were nervous about taking that stuff down because they were worried if they took that stuff down, then they were going to be like a publisher like Reason Magazine or the New York Times or Simon & Schuster, which are on the hook for content published by their authors. So social media companies didn't want to be treated like that. So they weren't doing any moderation whatsoever. So Section 230 gives them that ability to, to pick and choose, to set some kind of rules, but that does not suddenly put them on the hook for everything they don't take action against. So it's really important 
for setting up the regime where in general, they, they're not on the hook. Now, there are still some limitations, still some federal obligations for what they have to take down, but se- so Section 230 has accomplished that. Now, conservatives have this idea in their head, and it's just, it's, it's wrong. That, well, they're required to be neutral platforms. There's no neutrality requirement whatsoever in the law. You might say there ought to be one, but there isn't one right now. I don't know how that would work in practice to add, as soon as you start adding requirements, so yeah, well, what if you had to do X, Y, and Z before you get your Section 230 protection? Well, who's going to decide that? Like a, a panel set up by the Senate, which is controlled by the Democrats, um, a, a, a commission that will be lobbied heavily by Facebook and influenced by Facebook, if not handpicked by Facebook. Facebook now supports this reform. Keep in mind that Facebook employs thousands more content moderators than its nearest rival Twitter does. Twitter doesn't want Section 230 reform because it, it views this in the same way that kind of Walmart ends up supporting minimum wage because it drives out all the mom and pop shops. Uh, and and then and then they can raise you know they can raise their prices so it, it ends up being good for them. Uh, that's a version of that is on display here potentially. Okay, so to summarize, so you have Section two hundred and thirty, which starts in the nineties, basically saying, I, I think you explained this in your book. I think it was Prodigy, right? Was yeah, it's Prodigy the, and CompuServe, and I yeah. can't remember which decision was which. But yeah, I think that, it was, was like say, pro, like something pro. A CompuServe was doing no was doing no moderation, right. and Prodigy said, "Well, we want to make it a little bit more family friendly." And because of that, they were sued with libel. And yeah. so, Section two hundred and thirty allows some moderation without um, and without uh, being being right. libel. And 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 that say, for example, um, Reason Magazine or the Act Institute where I work, we have comment section. That does that Section two hundred and thirty protect us from people who comment? Yes, you cannot be sued. For, right, you and me, anyone, any comment section. Yeah, you can't sue that the platform. You can sue the commenter. And so, one of your your arguments against two thirty is that in fact it would empower, like you said, Facebook with lots of content moderators and lobbyists, and it would put at risk smaller startups. Right, right, because they they we they all benefit. Everybody on the internet benefits from this protection. Any any company, any you know, setting up a um, uh, a service, a so you anything. you might put them all out of business, and then you just this is would be exactly what the big guys want. Okay, so why do you think? And again, you know, you can't get in the head of this, but why do you think, say, conservatives who generally uh, have traditionally at least um, allowed for you know not, been wary of regulation, at least in theory? Okay, well, we won't debate the practical, just the theory. Why are they so enthusiastic about getting Section Thirty? 230 changed. And why do you think it's going to actually be shooting themselves in the foot? So I think conservatives are right that this is a, it's a sort of perk or privilege to be protected because, right, a a, a physical publisher, publisher of some physical thing is not, does not have this liability protection of, of, you know, the, the, for for reasons, print edition for Simon & Schuster as a book publisher, they don't have this protection. So I get that it's a special thing, and so it can be taken away. It's just a bad idea to take it away because it would result in more conservative speech being silenced. So that's my quick answer. Okay. And the and the what the critique would be, but look, even if it's not a neutral pro, pro, uh, platform, have not Google and Facebook and YouTube, which is Google, recently by deleting Rand Paul videos and all these other things, have they not actually become a publisher? And so they de, fa- they de facto have done this. It, that would be the response to you. What would you but say? That, that? But 
I would say, no, but that's exactly wrong because what the law says, what section 230 says is that they can do exactly what you described. Mm-hmm. They can they can choose what content to be on the site. And even if they do that, they're still not considered a traditional publisher and they're still protected right. from liability. That's what the law says. So they, they don't give up their section 230 immunity by doing the exact practice that section 230 allows them. Right, okay. And so, and your concern then is- the benefits we would get of changing 230 by allowing for, by or pre- preventing that, right, would actually, even if there were some benefits from it, they would actually harm conservatives much more than they would harm the left because conservatives would be, in a sense, more easily suppressed. Is that right? That's exactly right. And just so you have, you have in 30 seconds, why would, why would that be the case? Because the kind of speech that these companies are more likely to find as scary, provocative, wrong, dangerous, and potentially libelous is your speech, not speech that the people who work for the company who tend to be liberals agree with. Okay. All right. There's more we could talk about this, but we're, you have a hard stop here in three minutes. So yep. uh, I want right to <laughs> thank you very much, Robbie, for taking the time to, to come on the podcast. Hope we can have you back. And the book is called Tech panic, why we should not fear Facebook in the future. And Robbie, think people can find you at Reason Magazine and any, any other last words you have for us? Uh, don't. You can just follow me on Twitter at my name. All right. Good. Thanks, Robbie, for joining the Acton Podcast. Yep. Thank you. Bye-bye. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Jaja.